again. Good morning. There we go. Good. I want to welcome everyone here. I see there's some new faces and some that are familiar, even though we're only two weeks into this venture. It is good to see everyone who is here. We trust that God will be made much of and that you will be encouraged. Before I start on this morning's message, I want to explain the bulletin a little bit so that we have categories of thought for what we want to accomplish. You'll notice that the way the service is laid out, you'll see five large headings that all start with the C. You'll see five C's there. Uh, and what we want to practice here uh, is called, and you don't have to remember this word, it's nothing too intimidating, is called covenant renewal worship. Okay? Covenant renewal worship is well established in the history of the church, and basically what we are trying to do in covenant renewal worship is not just in the words and in the songs, but in the rhythm and in the pattern of our worship service to remind ourselves of the way God deals with man. Okay? And the way God deals with man is through a covenant. Uh, and so the worship service itself, historically, in the history of the church, has been structured like a covenant renewal. Okay? And so to explain the bits here, so the call to worship, uh, this is when God finds someone that he's going to enter into covenant with, and he calls them out. You know, Moses, come over here. Noah, come over here. I have to tell you something. Okay, so this is the call to worship, God calling his people together. Uh, and then the pattern is that uh, a recognition of who God is and who we are needs to take place. And this is the confession element, right? And so week after week, we need to be reminded that God's law kills us every week. And then his gospel brings us back to life. Okay? So this dying and rising with Christ, this law is killing us and the gospel is making us alive, uh, is part of the rhythm of a worship service. So we never take the gospel for granted. We need to be reminded of this because we are forgetful people. Uh, and then the consecration, this is when uh, God instructs his people. He tells Noah what to do. He tells Abram what to do. Okay? And so this is God teaching. Uh, and of course, the way we teach today is through God's word, through scripture. So this is the part of a worship service that contains the scripture reading um, and the, the, the message so that we get instructions from God. And then God doesn't send us out of the tent empty-handed, right? He, he gives us a meal of bread and wine to send us on our way, to be reminded of his promises to us. And so once we get to this point, we are not yet practicing communion here. Uh, but once we get to this point, this is where communion goes. This is where uh, God feeds us with physical elements to help remind us of his promises to us. He's not sending us out empty-handed. He is giving us a gift of communion. Uh, and the reason we are waiting on that is because we would like to do baptism first. Baptism is the front door to the house. Uh, and communion is the meal that the family enjoys together uh, in the dining room. And so this is waiting until we are able to perform a baptism service. Uh, which is not too far off, Lord willing. So for those of you who are interested in baptism, uh, you can come talk to one of us about that, because uh, once we are at that point, we, uh, we are looking forward to that. And at that point, communion is going to start. And then lastly, the commissioning. As God sends us out on our way, uh, he gives us a, a, an audible, a verbal reminder of what we are to do. And so this is where the benediction goes. This is where the charge, kind of the summary of the sermon goes and we are sent out on our way again for the week. So that maybe sounds like a lot, but we're all familiar with all these elements in a worship service anyway, right? We're all familiar with singing songs, we're all familiar with scripture being read, with the sermon, uh, with, with communion at some point or another. So the, this is nothing new, this is to help us think about what we're doing, okay? Uh, so just like a song doesn't just have lyrics, the lyrics get carried with something to give us a rhythm and a feel for what those lyrics actually mean. And so it is with the well-thought-through worship service, is this is the carrier, this is giving us a pattern and a rhythm of life uh, to help remind us of what God is doing, not just in the words, but in the way we, uh, we perform that. So we are going to be following that pattern, and that helps to explain uh, why it is done that way. And I'm sure we will have opportunity to explain that more in the future as well, but now is a good, a good starting point. All right. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy, and now today we are going to look at verse 12 through to the end. So if I could, I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And you can turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy 1, and we will start at verse 12. And these are the words of God. 
I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated.
Mac followed her soft humming down a short hallway and into an open kitchen dining area, complete with a small four-seat table and wicker-backed chairs. The inside of the cabin was roomier than he had expected. Papa was working on something with her back to him, flower flying as she swayed to the music of whatever she was listening to. The song obviously came to an end, marked by a couple of last shoulder and hip shakes. Turning to face him, she took off the earphones. He inquired, may I ask what you're listening to? You really want to know? Sure. Now Mac was curious. West Coast Juice. It's a group called Diatribe and an album that isn't even out yet called Heart Trips. Actually, she winked at Mac, these kids haven't even been born yet. Right, Mac responded, more than a little incredulous. West Coast Juice, eh? It doesn't sound very religious. Oh, trust me, it's not. More like Eurasian funk and blues with a message and a great beat. She sidestepped toward Mac as if she were doing a dance move and clapped. Evangelical Christian of the 21st century, behold your God. A woman shaking to funk music in the kitchen. Is it any wonder our worship is impotent? Is it any wonder our lives are impotent if this is what we think of God? Hold that thought because it will become important later. In our text today, verses 12 through 14 says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. So again, in the previous verses, Paul gave an explanation of the law and how it's to be used lawfully. Okay, of how it's meant to convict sinners of sin and then to instruct believers in righteousness. And so mainly, the law shows us our guilt, and then it serves as a guide for us after Christ has forgiven us. And before we know Christ, we are under the law. Okay, right? We have that language in the Bible, that we're no longer under law, but under grace. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God's law doesn't apply and we can just live however we want? No, of course not. What it means is we're not under the law in that the law is no longer cursing us. The law is no longer a, a cruel taskmaster over us and enslaving us, but we're under grace. The law still stands, but we're under grace. We have been forgiven, and now we are, are free servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and we see his law as good. It's no longer condemning us. It's now instructing us. Okay? God is no longer our judge. He is now our Father. He is kind. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in us to help us see the goodness of God's law and then to give us the strength to live according to it. In verse 12, Paul is thankful to Christ for giving him the strength that he needs. And so we start with an acknowledgement that the power that Paul enjoys is not from himself. Okay, this isn't self-formulated uh, or self-created, but rather he is thanking Christ for giving him this power. So Christ is the source of power, not himself. Right? And, and again, to use the analogy of the law, before we're saved, before Christ has forgiven us, the law serves like a mirror. It can show you your dirty face, but it cannot clean it. Okay? The law is powerless to clean us. The law is powerless to have us be justified and to stand before God righteous and holy. It can show us who we are, but that's as much as it can do. Christ and Christ alone can save Christ and Christ alone can wash us, and he does this through the gospel. So the law serves like a mirror, uh, showing us what we are, but then it stands powerless to fix the problem. One of the reasons that Paul is thankful is because the Lord has judged him faithful. Okay, And so based on the grammar alone, there are actually two ways that this could be taken in isolation. One is that the Lord is looking around the earth, and he sees Paul's performance... And he sees that Paul was faithful, doing the right things, and on that basis, God pardoned him. Okay? And many people are tempted by this reading, and we see it in regards to other people, right? Remember Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? And, and God calls out Abraham. Um, but we need to be, we need to think through what does that mean when God sees somebody faithful or He judges them faithful. And I think uh, the great reformer Martin Luther can help us here. When he knows that God does not find 
but creates that which is pleasing to him. Okay? God does not find, but he creates that which is pleasing to him. So the Lord judging Paul faithful is not because he found Paul doing all the right things, observed him being faithful, but rather by saving Paul through the gospel, the righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ gets imputed to Paul. He's judged faithful because he has been covered by the righteousness of Christ. And that word imputation, again, that's maybe a five dollar word, but all it means is that something else is covering you. Your guilt has been transferred to a different account, and Christ's righteousness has been transferred to you. So at the cross, there is a two-way exchange. Our guilt goes, gets put on Christ, and it gets punished once and for all there. And Christ's righteousness, that he has earned his entire life of observing the God's law perfectly, gets credited to us. Okay, so the cross is not just a not guilty verdict for us. It's much, much better than that. Okay? God's judgment on us is not that we are not guilty. It is that we are perfect, righteous, clean. You belong in my heaven because you are perfect. Okay? Not because of our performance, but because Christ's righteousness has been put on us. It's covering us like a robe. So when Christ looks at me or at you at his final judgment seat, he doesn't see me or you. Thank goodness. Right? What does he see? He sees his son. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us. And on that basis, he says, yes, holy, pure, righteous, come in, enjoy me forever. Okay? That's what imputation means. It means crediting or covering, uh, getting it put on your account. And then Paul also gives credit to Jesus for appointing him to his service. So turning Saul of Tarsus from a persecutor of the church into the Apostle Paul, who writes half of the books of the New Testament, is God's idea. None of us would have probably cooked that up, right? Think of your worst enemy, and then you bring him as close as you can into your inner court. Only God would do that. That's not a story we would write. And yet here it happens before our eyes. Paul himself is in awe of what God has done in his life, because he goes on to describe what a sinful man he was before his conversion. Now look at the language he uses. He says he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Okay, and again, this helps us understand that God didn't see faithfulness in Paul. Look at what he saw. When God looks at Paul, what does he see? A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Okay, so he, Paul was certainly not busy doing the kind of things that would make God look at him and say, Hey, that guy, he's doing the right things. I'm going to call him faithful. Okay, the faithfulness is a gift that God imputes to Paul. So we don't get the picture of God walking around his creation with his binoculars, desperately hoping to find someone doing all the right things that will qualify them for apostleship. Okay? And again, reminded of the words of Luther, God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to him. Verse 13, the latter half of it, should be read in the same way. Based on the grammar of the sentence alone, two interpretations are possible. One of which is that Paul received mercy in exchange for his ignorance. Okay? So, because Paul was ignorant, therefore uh, he receives mercy. But we know that this can be the correct handling of that particular sentence because of what we see later on in the following verses, and also what we learn elsewhere in Scripture. Okay? So the, the, the commentator Matthew Henry comments on this passage, what we do ignorantly is less a crime than what we do knowingly. Yet a sin of ignorance is still a sin. Ignorance in some cases will extenuate a crime, though it does not take it away. And notice this. Unbelief is at the bottom of what sinners do ignorantly. Okay, so in other words, Matthew Henry is saying that ignorance may make us slightly less guilty than if we're sinning in a high-handed or an intentional or hard-hearted way. But ignorance does not make us innocent. In fact, the reason we're ignorant is actually because of our unbelief. If we were trusting in Christ like we ought to be, we'd be studying His Word as we ought to be, and we would no longer be ignorant. Okay, so the ignorance is actually one of the things we need forgiveness for. Right? Uh, think of a drunk driver who kills somebody, and they go, oh, I couldn't help it, I was drunk. Okay? Are you guilty now of no crimes or of two? Right? 
it, it makes your sin worse. The ignorance makes your sin worse in, in the sense that there's one more thing you need to be forgiven of is not being acquainted with God's word enough to know what it means. Okay? But we also have the principle that Jesus gives in Luke 12, 47 and 48, where we do have an indication that judgment is, in fact, at least to some degree, according to how much light or how little light somebody has. And in, uh, in Luke 12, 47 and 48, Jesus says that the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Okay, so we do see the principle that uh, as our knowledge increases, as God's kindness to us increases, as we have more gifts that we enjoy, we become more and more accountable okay, than someone who uh, has no access to certain knowledge. So the principle stands that we are judged, at least to some degree, according to the light that has been given to us. But it is equally clear that we're guilty with or without that additional light. Both servants receive a beating because what they did deserve a beating. In Paul's case, as a teacher of the law and a student, when he says in Acts 22, he says that he's a student at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Okay, so Paul is a student of the top teacher of the law in Jerusalem. So can we say that Paul is totally ignorant? Right? He's received first-hand teaching from the great teacher of the law. So in that sense, we can't say Paul is ignorant. He was aware of the data points. He should have known better, but he didn't. Okay? Uh, and uh, there's a, a word picture I enjoy thinking through, um, because we are sometimes guilty of this too, right? How many times might we know all the names of all 12 apostles? Maybe we can name all the books of the Bible in order. Maybe we remember verses, and we know everything about it, except for what it means. Right? That was the crime of the Pharisees, and we shouldn't assume uh, that we are not guilty of that. Uh, and the word picture I like to think of is, imagine a, a foreign businessman coming to North America, uh, and he's not a native English speaker, and you know, gets taken out to Toronto or New York, pick your city, and he gets shown a good time, and, and they end up at some karaoke place, and you know, it turns out he's actually a fan of CCR, which is a good choice. And he wants to sing Fortunate Son. Okay? Uh, and because he's been listening to this music in this foreign country, he knows every note, he knows every word, he gets every inflection right, he absolutely nails it. He knows everything about that song, except for what it means. Okay? We should not be guilty of that. We should not know everything about our Bible except for what it means. Okay? That is what Paul was guilty of, that's what the Pharisees were guilty of, is knowing everything except for what it means. Verse 14 helps to point out the correct understanding of 12 and 13. It says here that the grace of the Lord overflowed for Paul with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the mercy that Paul received in those previous verses in 12 and 13 were an overflow of grace from the Lord, as are the faith and love that he talks about in verse 14. So faith and love are connected to the gospel here, just like they were we saw two weeks ago. Uh, in verse 5, faith and love are deeply connected to the gospel. It comes as a package. Okay, So cause and effect are important here as we think through this. So faith and love are not our admission fee that we pay to God in exchange for His grace. Okay? Rather, they are benefits that come with the gospel of grace, that they come with the, the, the package. Okay, So don't think of it. You hand in your ticket, you pay the admission fee, and then God exchanges it with grace. If you pay for your grace, are you still thinking about grace? If grace is in exchange for something you perform, are we still talking about grace? And of course we are not. For grace to be grace, it must be free. It must be free. Okay. So this isn't an exchange, here's my admission fee and then I get grace in return. It doesn't work like that. We'd no longer be talking about grace. Faith is not something we gin up or perform. Rather, faith is an open hand that receives the gifts of God. Okay? It's not something we can drum up in ourselves. It is an open hand that receives the gifts of God. 
And love and faith and joy and all these other benefits that come with the gospel are the gifts that God puts in our hands when his grace reaches down into our hearts. They are gifts for us to enjoy and not admission tickets that we give to God. Now, of course, we know that justification is by faith, so we need faith for our justification. But another way to think about it is think of a little kid buying mom and dad Christmas gifts. Okay? Does that little kid have money on their own to buy mom and dad a Christmas gift? No, what happens? Mom and dad give the kid 50 bucks so the kid can go buy mom and dad a present. Right? This is how faith operates. Even the faith that saves us is a gift from God. So if we have to get our ticket punched, God put that ticket in your hand. The whole thing is of grace. Okay? This isn't an exchange where we contribute something, other than perhaps we could say we do contribute our sin. But that's all we contribute. Verse 15, it says here, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And the saying that Paul comments on was obviously familiar to the churches, right? Because he says the, thing, the, the, the saying is trustworthy. So the saying evidently was going around. This was a saying that they were familiar with. Uh, and the saying is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so Paul was affirming that saying that would have been known to them, and he says it's trustworthy, it's deserving of full acceptance. Okay? And there are several places in Paul's letters where he actually quotes uh, what seem to be psalms or creeds or confessions in the very early church. And we're going to see that more in Timothy. There's a psalm uh, that's seemingly an ancient, ancient hymn uh, that Paul is uh, referring to in his letter to Timothy. Okay? So... Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is such an early creed. And we live in a time that devalues history. We devalue the worthwhile traditions of the church, the creeds and confessions. And one person has noted that catechisms used to be for children to learn, and then that was seen as too complex. So now this is only for men seeking ordination. Uh, and of course you get to today, people say, even at seminary, what's a catechism? Right? This is how we have, uh, have drifted. Okay? And creeds, confessions, catechisms, they're not on par with Scripture, never. Scripture alone is the Word of God. But they have value in that they serve as guardrails. Okay? Every cultist, every heresy claims, oh, well, we're just, just the Word of God, just the Word of God. Right? Jehovah's Witnesses are claiming, well, just the Word of God. And of course, that's false. These, these sayings, these creeds, confessions, the, the things that the church has hammered out through her history are helpful to us, not like a straitjacket, but like guardrails to keep us from veering out and taking one verse out of context or, or, or taking it at the expense of another verse. So one thing we hope to do with time here is to familiarize this church with creeds and confessions of the church, not because they stand beside Scripture or on part of Scripture, but because they help keep us from heretical interpretations or misinterpretations of Scripture. They keep us in touch with the church through her history. Okay? And so we want unity, not just with believers in Uganda and in China and in the Ukraine and in Belize. We want unity with God's church through history. Okay? We also want to be united to 1st century believers and 12th century believers and believers from the 17th century. That's also church unity. Okay? And forgetting our history is not the way to be united with what God has been doing in his church through history. So Paul's use of an early and simple creed does in fact show that there's nothing wrong with the church summarizing what it sees in scripture. Summarizing an orthodox and biblical a biblical doctrine in an easy-to-remember format, whether it's in a song or in a creed or in a confession. Okay? The important point of verse 15, however, is that Christ Jesus' purpose for coming into this world was to rescue and to save sinners. And Paul sees himself as the foremost of sinners. Some of us were talking about this earlier this morning. It's funny, maybe your experience is the same. As you get older, you actually see yourself in a worse light. Right? I remember as a kid in high school, I used to catch turkeys for a number of the farmers in Labrador before school. And you know after you've loaded 2,000 birds into the truck, you know there's less birds in the barn. And yet you go back and it seems like that barn keeps getting fuller every trip back into the barn. Right? It just seems like there's more and more to do. And, and likewise, as we grow in holiness, uh, we know we're making progress. We know we're putting sin to death. We know we're growing in grace. 
And yet, what do we see more of in ourselves? More sin. More sin to deal with. Matt, why did you do that again? You should know better. And you're not a kid anymore. You should know better. And it's interesting that as Paul's ministry goes on, if you go through the chronology of his letters, he actually speaks of himself in increasingly terrible terms as he's growing in grace. Right? Uh, where to the end, he calls himself the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. He's the worst of everybody he knows. Who's the worst guy he knows? Right? Uh, and so this is actually a sign uh, of that we are making progress as we're more aware of the sin that remains in us that we need to deal with. So Christ came to the world to save sinners. Christ sees himself as a sinner. But there's one more question. Why? Why would Christ come into the world to save sinners? What's his motivation? Why would he do this? Think about that for a minute. Why would Christ want to save sinners? Paul says that the reason he received mercy from Christ is so that Jesus Christ can put himself on display. So those who believe in Jesus for eternal life look to him as an example because his glory is the true north star of all creation. It's the point. It's the point of creation. So the reason we have creation at all, and the reason that the fall came to corrupt that creation, so that Jesus Christ, who was the Savior from before the foundation of the world, could come into this world and save it, all of that is because God has a white-hot zeal for his own glory. That's the reason. Every event, every person, everything that you can picture, why is it happening? For the glory of God to be put on display. Okay? Somehow or another, God is telling the story in every last thing that is happening in his creation because uh, he did not need a friend. We discussed this in Catechism evening a, a number of weeks ago. God didn't need a friend. He wasn't lonely. Creation isn't there so we can keep God company. Rather, in the triune nature of God, he is so overflowing with love and delight in himself, in the three persons of the Trinity, that he can't help but that burst out in creation. That's the point. Creation is the theater. It is a, it's a dazzling theater in which God is delighted to display his glory. Every star that is singing, every whale that beaches out of the ocean, okay, everything is done for God to express his glory in his creation. And we get so used to it, we don't see it. But we need eyes to see everything is for the glory of God. Every animal, every plant, every historical event, every person you will meet exists to display the glory of God. And it's not because he's lonely. It's because he is so zealous for himself that he can't not burst it out. Okay? And we as image bearers are created to be an audience for that glory. To sit in this theater and observe it and enjoy it. In Romans 11, 36, or 33 through to the end, if you come to our house, you'll see this up in our dining room wall. Because I think this encapsulates the whole point of everything in the world. Romans 11, where Paul bursts out in praise again after teaching the church. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Notice that. From him, through him, and to him are all things. God is the source of all things. God is the means of all things. And God is the end of all things. It's all for his glory. And he's energizing every last bit of it. Even the parts of the story we don't like. Okay? Even Gashu. Even Saruman. Okay? The bad guys are there to tell a story about God. That's why he puts them in the story. So despite the popular song lyrics, it is true that of all created things, people are uh, the crown and glory of creation. This is true. But despite the popular song lyrics, God does not love people more than anything. Loves himself more than anything. And that might sound backwards, right? Because we're told to put others ahead of ourselves. Well, why is that? Because we are not perfectly worthy objects of our affections. When we love ourselves above other people, we're loving something sinful, something corrupted. What could God love more than himself? If he loves himself, if he loved anything more than he loves himself, he would no longer be a good and perfect God. 
What is the only thing that is worthy of all praise is God himself. Okay? God's zeal is for his passion. And that's why when you read again and again and again in the Old Testament, for my glory I'm about to do this. Not for you, little Israel, but for my name I am going to do this. For me, my name will be famous. I will not give my glory to another. Okay? That's the kind of God we have. He is burning with passion and love for himself because there is nothing better or more pure or more perfect or more righteous to love in the universe. This is the God who presents himself in Scripture. But then he does, in fact, make us as the crowning jewels, his image bearers, to behold and to see and to delight in what he is doing in his creation and to save us so that we have eyes to see what he is doing. And Paul catches this vision and then he erupts in praise as he's teaching the church here in delight for the vision of God's glory that he sees. And it bursts out in verse 17. Look at verse 17. And you saw some of the music pointing to this theme. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we see some of God's characteristics coming up here. He is the king of ages, the ruler of times and men. He is immortal. He has no beginning and no end. You follow that line of eternity all the way back to the past and God is there. Follow it all the way out into the future and God is there. He is the I Am, the Alpha and the Omega. He is invisible, so he's not made up of parts, right? Our bodies, you could pull us apart into enough pieces that you could properly say, well, that's not this person anymore. We're so torn apart. We're made up of finite little parts. God is invisible. He's not made up of parts. We can't separate him. We can't destroy him. And it says he is the only God. So he is the one in whom creation is made and sustained. And it is to him and him alone that we owe all glory and all honor. So think back to what William P. Young writes in the shack in the beginning. A woman shaking her hips, listening to reggae music, spilling flour all over herself, and she can't just help but give sloppy kisses to Mac. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Perhaps few people have helped me as much in seeing uh, the supremacy of Christ as John Piper. And in his book, Desiring God, and then there's another book called God is the Gospel, he lays out such a clear image of who this God is. Okay? Who is Christ? Well, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, according to the author of Hebrews. God depends on nothing outside of himself to be God. And in theology, we call this aseity. And aseity just means self-existence. Think of how fragile we are in this room. What do we need to live? A certain temperature? We need food? We need air? We need shelter? We need our heart to pump, we need our lungs to breathe, we need our blood to be oxygenated, we need food, we need water. How many millions of things are we dependent on to live? God needs none of that. God is dependent on nothing outside of himself to be God. He's God! Okay? He exists in and of himself. He's absolute reality. There is nothing that he needs outside of himself. And he never changes. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his knowledge is perfect, it's supreme, he is all-knowing, okay? Every internet article, everything Google can find, every book in the library at Parliament Hill, and in your school, and in your university, looks like a little first-grade reader to God. He knows everything. And his authority is supreme. Jesus said that all authority on heaven and earth had been given to him. And he does whatever he wants among kings and nations and rulers. Okay? From the Medo-Persians taking over from the Assyrians and then sending in Alexander the Great to conquer them and do exactly what God wanted him to do, setting up synagogues, Hellenizing the culture until he's done with Alexander the Great and the Romans come in and set the stage for Jesus Christ to come into the world. God does what he wants with his creation, raising up kings and destroying them building up empires and tearing them down. And no one can say to him, what have you done? No one can stay his hand. He's God. He's doing what he wants. Okay? His providence is supreme. Not one sparrow can fall apart from his will. Not one hair has fallen out of my bald head without God saying, this needs to happen. 
He's supreme over armies and earthquakes and hurricanes and snowstorms and tornadoes and invisible viruses and wars and then the antidotes for all those things that we do not deserve. He is as much supreme over Pharaoh as he is over Moses, as much over John and Paul as he is over Pilate and Judas. He is as much king over Justin Trudeau and Vladimir Putin as he is over David and Solomon. He is supreme. He is supreme over every last person in this room and this building and this yard and this country and this universe right to the stretches that the Hubble telescope will not see if it keeps taking a picture for a thousand years. Christ is supreme over that. And his word is supreme. He spoke this all into existence. The minute he quits thinking the thought of his creation, it implodes, it collapses. He's God. His power is supreme. He stops storms. And he raises Lazarus out of the grave with words, Lazarus, come out. And it happens. His purity is supreme. He came to earth in the form of a man and he did not sin once. He fought all the sin. He kept God's law perfectly. And his radiance and his purity are so supreme that when Moses asks, please give me a little glimpse, what does he do? He puts Moses in a cave, covers it, and Moses sees the backward parts of God come by. And it is so overwhelming that Moses' face is so lit up that the Israelites' eyes hurt when they see Moses. That is the kind of God we have. That is the God we serve. He stands in a furnace with three other men with flames lapping all around him and he is not touched. And his justice is supreme. Every sin will be reckoned with, either once for all at the cross or in eternity in hell. But every indiscretion will be dealt with perfectly, justly. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either willingly in response to the gospel or when the Lamb comes with his rod of iron and crushes those knees to power. But every tongue will confess, every knee will bow at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your way or his way. And his patience is supreme. Think of this. We are a nation that is seething with hatred towards God. We put our pride flags up. We kill little babies for the sake of our sexual convenience. Now that's not enough, so we kill old people once they become a burden. Okay? And this is all put forth in the language of compassion. We raise our fists to God and we pretend like we don't know the difference between boys and girls anymore. We profane marriage and the gift of sex, the incredible gifts that God has given us. We profane that and we raise our hand to heaven, wishing we could strike at God, but we can't. We are seething with hatred towards him. And what does he do? The sun rises every morning. Okay? And we can gather and we can enjoy the laughter and the crying of a little baby. And we have enough food to eat. And we have shelter. And we have air conditioning. And we have refrigeration. And antibiotics. And a million things that we do not deserve. What kind of patience is God giving to us? What kind of mercy is that? That the sun comes up on this wicked nation every morning. God's wrath is supreme. Romans 4 talks about him storing up wrath. God's wrath is a tsunami you do not want to deal with unprotected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Revelation, we have a picture of people gnawing their tongues in anguish and still they don't repent. That's how deep their, their hatred for God is. The self-love that keeps us from repenting, from turning to Christ. It says they will gnaw their tongues in anguish and cry out for rocks to smash their heads so they don't have to deal with this lamb that's coming in judgment anymore. That is a tsunami you do not want to deal with. And yet his grace is also supreme. Who else can tell Ezekiel? Supreme. Who else can tell Ezekiel? Go to that belly of dry bones and start preaching to them. All the dead bones, what's going to happen? When he starts preaching, and sinew and cartilage starts to come. And he preaches some more. And some meat and some flesh start growing on these bones. And then God breathes life into it. And this valley of dry bones comes alive. Only God can do that. 
He is a gentle Savior that promises that he will not break a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. What kind of Savior takes on the white-hot fury of his, of his Father and stands in the way of it on behalf of his creation? Hellbound sinners who deserve every last bit of what they're getting. And Christ stands in the way and absorbs it. And then God says, you are righteous, you are innocent, you are pure. This is the God we are made to know. And we don't have eyes to see him unless the gospel does its work. And so the gift of the gospel is not just that we would be saved from the wrath of hell, as though as true as that is. The final gift of the gospel is God himself. Eyes to see who he is. This is what we are made for. We are made to see God as he is, to see his supremacy, to know him and enjoy him forever. And Christ is the ultimate treasure of God's creation. And he will have dominion from sea to sea over mountains and planets and microbes and galaxies. And as the great Abraham Kuyper once explained to summarize his entire theology, is that there is not one square inch in the entire universe over which the risen Christ does not say, Mine. It's mine. That's the God that's painted here in this verse. This is the point. We need to see this. And in verse 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So after giving Timothy an explanation of God's undeserved kindness and grace and mercy, Paul then reminds his student why Christ came to earth, which is to save sinners, and then he goes a layer deeper, why does he save sinners? Well, to bring glory to himself, to put himself on display in his creation, in this theater of his glory. So he doesn't just give Timothy a charge, he shows him why this charge is so important. The warfare that Timothy is to wage is because Timothy has tasted this gift of grace and he has seen the glory of God. And because this gift of grace has penetrated Timothy's heart, he holds, his, he holds in his hands the gift of faith, the gift of love that come together with that gospel as well as a clear and good conscience. And this is a different picture than those who have made shipwreck of their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander are likely the guys that we read about in the early part of the chapter, those false teachers in the church. And the people have rejected the gospel that Timothy possesses, and therefore they are headed for disaster. These are like the people in Jesus' parable of the sower, where it looks like there's life and then it withers up because the root of the matter really isn't in them. They fade away and die. And we have names for these two men, uh, and as I mentioned, it's likely that they were the men, the false teachers of beginning of the chapter, they were probably in church leadership, in which is why Paul had to write this letter. But then notice the point behind the discipline. It says they've been handed over to Satan in order to learn not to blaspheme. Okay, and so you'd think handing them over to Satan would finalize their destruction, and maybe it did. We don't know the outcome of these two men. But you see, even here, the goal of this discipline is to restore them, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, so Paul almost, in a way, almost sounds optimistic about what's going to happen to these two. But whatever happens to them, we, for us today, have the reminder not to make final judgments about other people. Okay? We can't look at a still photo of someone's life and make a final determination. Watch the whole movie. Okay? And here's, here's the problem if you just take a still photo, a snapshot in time of someone's life. If you're looking at Judas at the moment at which he gets uh, into the inner circle of the apostles, he's actually made treasurer. If you get just a still snapshot of that, well, you'd say, well, this guy's really got it together. Chief among the apostles. This guy's got it going on. And yet by the time he commits suicide and dies, Jesus says that he was a devil from the beginning. Jesus never knew Judas. He was always there as an imposter. Likewise, what about King David? If you just catch the image of him committing adultery with a beautiful woman and then covering his tracks by murdering his husband, her husband, unjustly, you say this guy is absolutely beyond hope. What did we sing this morning? Psalm 51. Who wrote Psalm 51? David. After he repents of his adultery and murder. Psalm 51 is God's gift to the church and it's made possible because of David's repentance. 
So we don't know the outcome of any one person's life. So we are therefore cautioned against making final judgments. But the example of Paul excommunicating Alexander and Hymenaeus is a reminder that church discipline is necessary and serious, but that no matter how difficult a case you're dealing with, the goal is not to be done with people, it is to restore them for their good, that they may learn not to blaspheme in this case. So in summary, most importantly, we become what we worship. So seeing a vision of the true and living God for who he is is so important. It is life and death. Know God as he presents himself in scripture. Further, we're made in God's image, so we don't even know who we are properly until we know who God is. And you see that playing itself out in our world, don't we? We've forgotten who God is, now we don't even know who we are anymore. We don't know what we're here for. We can't even tell basic differences like boy and girl, because God has given us over to blindness. Why? Because we have rejected seeing his image. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and even this is an act that's not man-centered, but God-centered. He's bringing glory back to himself so that he can refill and redeem his creation with image-bearers who are redeemed and who have eyes to see who God is and to enjoy him forever. And so we also don't get the benefits of the gospel in exchange for something we give to God. We don't drum it up in ourselves. Rather, we, we have an empty hand, and God puts all the gifts of the gospel into it, including the faith and the love and the clear conscience that are described in this passage. And with that, I will close, and I will ask the, the music team to come up for one last song. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you give a picture of who you are. You are the ruler of men and lands and ages and times. Lord, you are supreme, and this whole universe, from the furthest distance in space to the lowest bit of the ocean that we have not yet examined, and the life that is there, and the stars that are singing, everything is for your glory, Lord. Please give us eyes to see this. We were made for this, and we will not find peace until we see it. Lord, please, and help your church to see that you are worthy of worship. Lord, that we would make this a priority. Forgive us when we'd rather stay at home in our jammies and make waffles rather than join with your people and sing praises and be instructed by your word and send out with an encouragement. Lord, we ask that the people that are currently so at war against you and against peace and order on this earth, Lord, that your gospel would break them into pieces and then put them back together in a way that will bring glory to you, that they would recognize and acknowledge who you are that they would turn and amend their ways, Lord, and that you would be glorified in their salvation. And yet, Lord, if that will not happen, then we pray that you would crush the evil in this world, and we thank you that we have that promise. You will. The Lamb is coming with his rod of iron to destroy every enemy. Lord, give us hearts of compassion. Give us hearts that are fearless to share your gospel far and near, that people would know and acknowledge you for who you are, the King of Ages, the invisible, immortal, only wise God. We thank you for this. And it's all in the strong and powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.